Hey, hey, everybody. Happy Tuesday. To all you seasoned Rocketeers, welcome back. And for those of you just joining us for the first time, it is good to have you on board the proverbial rocket ship. Today, we will be speaking with Catherine Monson, the Chief Operating Officer of Hedron. I'll tell you about the startup, which is building a network of data relay satellites, and bring Catherine on shortly after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Altec Incorporated. Altec is a leading custom injection molding and precision machining manufacturer of key parts and components for rockets and satellites. And yes, that includes small sats. Altec works with customers to develop solutions tailored to their mission, needs, and goals. Based in the United States, Altec's dedicated team provides design assistance and manufacturing for proprietary and confidential projects. As if Altec's custom injection molding, in-mold electronics, heat treating, painting, and testing wasn't already the whole nine yards, Altec also provides assembly and kitting for a wide range of structural and mechanical products. Learn more at altec-inc.com. That's A-L-T-E-K-inc.com. Hedron aims to build a network of data relay satellites that will connect space to Earth in real time. The company has plans to get its hardware on orbit in a few years' time, and its initial go-to-market strategy is focused on Earth observation satellite operators. Hedron says it may be able to shave data relay time from today's standard of 15 to 30 minutes to milliseconds, which could enable a whole host of new applications for space-based data. Today we'll unpack how Hedron aims to deliver on that vision with Catherine. Before her current role, Catherine was head of KSAT USA and an early, and before that, an early employee of Spire. She also had a background in high-stakes negotiation and worked with a range of Fortune 500s prior to joining the aerospace world. I will, uh, I'll bring her on so that we can get a deep dive into everything from on-orbit data relay technology to terrestrial telco networks to startup operations to Iowa and a whole lot more. Without further ado, Catherine Monson. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Where are you calling in from today, or slash where's home? So I live in Boulder County. I live in Louisville, which is just east of Boulder, which unfortunately is now famous, infamous. We had a very significant wildfire here in Louisville last December. So I think if many people think of Louisville, they think of the Marshall Fire. So I live okay. actually just about a block from where the fire stopped. We were very fortunate that our house was not oh, in wow. But uh, beautiful Boulder County, it's certainly not a bad place to live. Yeah. What's what, How cold is it right now? Up there? You know, it's been very cold outside. Um, it's warming up now. It's 46, but it was in the 20s yesterday. We're basically tied. Uh, and just, just to contextualize, I'm, I'm in my, my dad's house in... Dallas, and if anybody throughout this recording, if anyone, if you hear a leaf blower and a very loud dog barking, that's not happening near Boulder. That's happening in Dallas. Just want to <laughs> want, want to establish that. So, what's the what's what's the elevator pitch that you would give folks, like the the thirty second uh, spiel? Yeah, it's a good question. So, really, the problem that we're solving at Hadron is we need to get data to people who can do something with it. So while I'm thrilled to see you know, a planet image on the cover of The Economist or a Maxar image being used to prosecute human rights violations in Burma, those are things that already happened. So those images are archival. What we really need to be able to do is get information to people in a time frame in which they can actually make a decision and they can actually act and change the outcome. 
That's something that today we're not able to do because our space communications infrastructure is frankly archaic. We can do better uh, and the technology now exists that we can build a better infrastructure. Awesome. Well, there's a lot to dig into there. On space infrastructure, I think that kind of dovetails pretty well with your past experience and your most recent experience, but let's 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 go to the beginning. I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this, so hopefully no judgment from anyone who's listening in. I really, really, really wanted to be the Secretary of Defense when I was a kid, which I'm aware is kind of an unusual thing for a kid growing up in Iowa. Um, but I was really motivated to try to, in somewhat of a naive way, I thought, gosh, like if one could just you know, end war, you could, you know, alleviate so much suffering. And I thought, you know, the place to do that is I need to go to the Department of Defense, I need to understand conflict, and I need to be able to have a seat at the table so that we can, you know, start to create uh, opportunities for conflict to be avoided or mitigated or managed in a different way. So I'm aware of how uh, naive that sounds. But again, that was my childhood view of it. But no, I think no, you got to dream, dream big, shoot for the stars. I love that. Exactly. Um, so I went to school to study defense policy, um, and at the time especially, there were really two programs that were offering defense policy as a major. It was Tufts University in Georgetown. Um, my politics are a little bit more on the progressive side, so I ended up going to Tufts, studied defense policy. From there, went to go work at the Pentagon. Um, so I worked for the undersecretary of what was called Acquisitions, Technology, and Logistics at the time, so OUSD ATNL. Um, that was when Secretary Panetta was SECDEF. Um, had a fantastic experience working at the Pentagon. Um, my entire education was focused on getting to this one dream job. But I got to that dream job and I realized, oh my gosh, um, I'm looking at my colleagues and they have one of two paths. Uh, one hand, they have been fighting for years to try to make some change. You know, and it's a hugely bureaucratic system with many, many, many stakeholders. So a lot of good people trying to do really good work, but just a lot of stakeholders to manage. And folks were would take one of two outcomes. So they would either decide, oh, my gosh, I just can't make any change. I'm pushing this boulder uphill and they just get frustrated. The other path is they would start to say, well, I can't make a difference. And so they would become kind of disinterested. And I thought to myself, my gosh, I do not want to spend the rest of my life with one of those two paths. I'm not seeing anybody who's feeling like super motivated to keep pushing the boulder uphill, there must be a different way. So I took a bit of a right turn. Um, my The office that I worked for at the Pentagon was specifically focused on international cooperation. So we were in charge of negotiating various um, research and development programs across allies. So at the time that I was okay. there, we were really working on the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35, um, negotiating kind of how, how that deal came together with U.S. allies. So I decided I really loved the negotiation aspect of what we were working on, and I decided and, and I, I could go learn about that. I could imagine that working on the F-35 and working with, with a bunch of allied countries that you would, you would learn the, the ropes of high-stakes negotiating, intense negotiating pretty quickly. Exactly, yep. Um, so I moved back to Boston and I went to go work for a consulting firm that had spun out of Harvard Project on Negotiation. So Project on Negotiation is really um, a, th a think tank through Harvard Law School that was really focusing on creating best practices in negotiation. So they spun out this consulting firm to support Fortune 500 companies. Um, my clients at the time were really focused in uh, pharmaceutical development, so a lot of challenges between big pharma companies acquiring smaller biotechs, 
how do they capture the best of both of those worlds? How do they align these two different organizational cultures to be able to continue to take new innovation to market? Um, but then I also worked with semiconductor companies. So highly capital intensive, um, very much the type of scale where, you know, if you're going to spend $47 million on a lithography machine to yeah. you know, put multiple lines in the fab, you don't want to get it wrong because you don't get to play yeah, again if yeah. you get it wrong. Yeah, I, the, the ASML, I'm, I'm so fascinated. I'm endlessly fascinated by ASML's machines. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a super interesting industry. Um, and in, in many ways, I think I share that background because starting at a, a scale of capital that's actually even more extreme than what we experience in aerospace, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of set my reference points in a different place. So I was working at the consulting firm and I had a friend who said, gosh, I'm working at this small space startup out in San Francisco. We're thinking about space totally differently. We think we need your help. And I'm like, okay, uh, help with what? Um, she says, well, why don't you just come out to San Francisco? If you can take a weekend, just sit down with our team. You know, there, there were eight of them at the time. Um, we have some challenges that we'd love to talk to you about. And I understood this as kind of supply chain challenges. So I got out to San Francisco, I was going to just help this friend, um, and the company turned out to be Spire, so Spire Global. Oh, there you go. I got out to San Francisco, and I'll just say this kind of flippantly, but I kind of fell in love with these crazy space people. It's like, my gosh, these are people that are super mission-driven, so they have the exact energy that drove me to defense in the first place. There were people who were willing to think about hard problems. They were moving very, very, very quickly and they really cared about what they were building. Mm -hmm. So I really frankly just fell in love with the energy of the team. And I ended up moving to San Francisco with my husband um, and started working at Spire. And this was the early days of New Space. So this was when it was really Spire and Planet. Um, this was right around the time that Skybox was acquired by Google. Um, so very much the nascent, the nascent part First, of the New Space industry. Spoiler alert, if you will, but you, you had a big hand in growing out the ground segment, right? So could you tell us a little bit about what that was like and the thinking that drove your strategy at Spire? Yeah, it's a good question. So one of the kind of innovations that Spire really piloted was owning the full vertical. Um, Planet was doing something similar. So, you know, that was a, an innovation within new space. Uh, building the satellites in-house, but also then building the ground stations in-house. So both the design of the hardware, as well as going out and building new locations and owning and operating those systems. Uh, we had an absolutely fantastic team at Spire, uh, some of my closest friends and, and folks who have gone on to seed various other companies within the industry really came out of that early time at Spire. What came next after Spire? Yeah, so I, at that point, was a customer of KSAT, and KSAT, the global company, is headquartered in Norway. And KSAT at the time approached me and said, hey, we're looking to build out a U.S. company. So half of KSAT's business, half of the revenue, half of the customer base is United States-based. And they said, look, we need to be closer to these you know, innovative new companies that are moving very quickly. So we need to start a U.S. company. Is that something you would be willing to do? Would you be willing to come on board and, and start a U.S. company? So I then moved from Spire to KSAT um, and started what became um, the U.S. corporation of KSAT Inc. Is, is KSAT Inc. still a full subsidiary of the parent KSAT company? 
It is, yep. So KSAT Inc. is a U.S. Delaware Incorporated corporation that is fully owned by KSAT Global. I think it's fascinating. I've heard I've heard you speak about your your time at at KSAT before, because on the one hand, you you balanced this this kind of disruptive mentality. I think a, a lot of that you know is embodied by by some of these companies that come out of San Francisco, a lot of which aren't in space at all. But some of the the, the space ones that we've talked about, when you balancing that on the one hand with the the like pedigree. Uh, I think pedigree is a Pedigree has a good connotation. Legacy sometimes in, in, in space people think that has a bad connotation. I'm not using it with any sort of bad connotation. But the pedigree and legacy of being a 50 or, or 60, I'm not sure exactly how, how old Kongsberg is. But what was that experience like? Like having the, the disruptor mentality in a way, you know, starting up this 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 new division, this this U.S. Um, corp company with with the that that legacy aspect and and all of the decades of operational experience yeah it's such a good question um infrastructure companies are all about trust so you you just want the infrastructure to work um you know you don't want to think too hard about your internet provider because if you're thinking about it it means that something's not going well and that's the same when it's a space-based infrastructure service so it really is about um you know, I, I used to say at KSAT, it's it's not that we're super smart at KSAT and we don't make mistakes. It's that this is a 50-year-old company. So those mistakes were made 40 years ago. We're not going to make them again. Um, everyone who comes into the space industry makes a certain number of mistakes. Um, and everyone in the industry has learned from the mistakes that they have personally done before or seen their team do mm -hmm. before. So you don't continue to propagate them forward. So I do think having that... Um, that expertise of having decades of experience in building and operating ground infrastructure was hugely yeah. important. Um, and um, the the piece that I you know give full credit to Rolf and Arnif and the management team at KSAT Global was they have always said that, and, and I so firmly believe this as well, you have to understand your customer. You have to understand their problems. Don't build solutions that, you know, you're going to sit in a conference room and design yourself. You need to sit down at the table and say, hey, how can I help you? What would it take for us to double your revenue next year? Is there a piece of that that we can take off your plate to make easier for you? And being close to the customer is the reason why the KSAT Inc. Corporation was even established. So I'm old enough to remember when you were called Analytical Space, now obviously Hedron. Why the rebrand? So it is more than just a rebrand. Um, Hedron reflects that we have a new management team. Um, our management team has come on board within the last year. And along with that new management team, we have a new technology roadmap, a new architecture, and a new approach. The problem we're solving is still the same. So we are still focused on moving data from space to the end users who need it here on Earth in a time frame that they can make actionable. And on to the main business at hand. What, what are you doing? It's a very good question. Um, we are servicing Earth observation operators. So our target audience, our, our customer base, are folks who operate satellite platforms in LEO. They are collecting information about the Earth. That is information that is collected on satellites because typically it has somewhat of a global nature. Um, or it's information that um, needs to be collected kind of with a degree of separation from um, from kind of the sovereign, you know, you're, you're not going yeah. into someone's company, or country and taking a, a picture through a drone. So those are the types of data sets that flow through the Hedron network. 
um, our focus is really on solving that problem of we need to be able to get data from the satellite, which is just a way of capturing it, to the people who need the information in a time frame that allows them to take an action. And right now, you know, the fastest of these paths are 20 minutes, but for most operators, it's more like, you know, anywhere from 20 minutes to 60 minutes to 90 minutes to two hours. So those are timeframes that don't really allow end users to be able to take an action. Like it's not helpful to know what was on fire in Ukraine 20 minutes ago. Like that fire has already burned. People have already been right. impacted by it. You're, you're too late to be able to change the outcome of that. But if you had that information within 30 seconds, you might be able to take a responsive action to change the outcome. And so this is really at the root is, is the, the bottleneck that you're, you're tackling or the pain point in the industry is it's latency. Exactly. Um, the short physics of it comes back to the earth is 71% water. So there are only so many places on the planet that you can build an antenna where it's gonna have access to terrestrial fiber or connectivity in some way and have power. Um, and let's say too, which is true for US companies, like you can't downlink in Russia or China. So you take those big land masses out of the picture. And that is why we have such limited access to our satellites is even if you proliferate antennas all over the world, which ground station providers are doing. So this is kind of the challenge that I myself worked on for the last 10 years is how do we get more connectivity to more places so we can shorten that latency window? You're limited by the fact that you, you can't build antennas over the ocean because then you have a different problem for moving the data back to people who need it. So the answer is building in satellite in space satellite relays. So how do you create bridges from a satellite to the nearest ground station so you don't simply have to wait the number of minutes that it takes for that satellite to pass over the antenna? Right, right. Perfect, perfect. Let's let's put a bookmark in the, the in-space relay component because we are going to take a quick break. Manufacture of key parts and components for rockets and satellites. And yes, that includes small sats. Altec works with customers to develop solutions tailored to their mission needs and goals. Learn more at altech-inc.com. Okay, we are back and we're picking up at the, on the topic of data relays and, and space and overcoming the, the fact that the, the earth is mainly water. Uh, not everyone, you know, there, there, there are adversaries, not everyone is, is, is friendly on earth. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, just the, the tyranny of water, I, I, I'd never heard it kind of, kind of freight, like described in that way, but I think that, that, you know, is, is, is a very, very good way of, of, of thinking about it. So taking a lot of these, these links to, to space, right? Exactly. Yep. So it's, how do you get data from where it's collected on the satellite platform to the person who needs it? much more quickly than we are today. And today that's measured in minutes and we need to be moving into milliseconds. Okay. And you, the, the, the plan for Hedron is you'll be launching your own hardware. Is that right? Yes. So we are building in space communications infrastructure. So we will have our own satellites. Mm -hmm. um, those satellites are really focused on providing that communication service. Um, our architecture is really based on um, a couple of learnings from the terrestrial infrastructure. So 
let me explain a little bit about how we think about building communications infrastructure. And the reason I am so confident that we can build a better communications infrastructure in space is that we as humans have already built a much better communications infrastructure here on Earth. So when Barris and Rhonda and I sat down and really looked at this problem, we drew a lot of inspiration from the terrestrial mobile network. So there are kind of three major learnings that we really took from the terrestrial mobile network into building our space communications infrastructure. So if you'll indulge me, Ryan, I'll go through the list. Absolutely. No, no, no. Paint the picture of really how we think about this. I no, I love it. I I def I, I want to the the interplay between 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 telco basically and and space. No, absolutely. By all means, go ahead. Okay, great. So if you were to pull up on Google, you could type in terrestrial communications around the globe, and you'll get essentially a heat map of where where is their connectivity. And what you'll notice when you look at that map is that there are hotspots and places where there is not connectivity. And those hotspots are really based around urban areas predominantly, but areas where there are people who are willing to pay for communications infrastructure. So let me even just make this even more granular and, and contextualize it. So I live in Boulder County. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I live in a major tech hub in the United States um, and I can drive 10 minutes from my house into the foothills and I will lose cell phone service. And it's not that we don't know how to build a cell phone tower in the foothills. We absolutely know how to do that. The reason there's not a cell phone tower here in the foothills is that there's not enough demand of users who are willing to pay for that cell phone tower to be built. And you know, that's annoying, but we're all used to that here on Earth, that there are places where, yep, we're just, the, the business model doesn't close for there to be connectivity. So that's the number one rule yeah. of building communications infrastructure, which is build where there are people who will pay to use that infrastructure. Do not build in places where there are not users who will pay to build that infrastructure. Yeah. So number two is if you look at the map of you know global connectivity, it is not a unified grid. So like if you look at even like the optical fiber, it's not running in these you know beautiful evenly distributed you know grids that are latitudinally and longitudinally equally spaced. No, the, those terrestrial fiber cables follow the demand. So going back to, to rule number one, we've laid out our terrestrial connectivity in following the demand, which means that you have pockets that have much more connectivity in denser demand regions, and then areas where we're just connecting those areas that have the high density of demand. So number two, learning in terms of, of how we've applied this to space communications infrastructure is do not build unified grids. Building a unified grid breaks the first rule, which means you're building infrastructure in places where there are people who are not willing to pay for it. Interesting. And then the third rule here that we've really learned and kind of leveraged here at Hedron is don't reinvent the wheel. So plug into existing infrastructure. So let's say that, um, Let's say, Ryan, you're going to build your own mobile telecommunications company. Um, and let's say it's like 1995. So you're still hot on like the, the upside of the mobile network. You're going to be that, like. That would that would make me like a, a, a five-month-old founder. But. I think you're very precocious. I totally believe in your ability to do this. <laughs> okay. So let's say it's right. uh, Duffy Telco. And you decide that you're going to lay out your first cell phone towers in Seattle because, gosh, you know, there's this whole Microsoft thing happening there. It looks like a lot of early adopters, tech savvy folks. We're going to we're going to start our beta market here in Seattle. 
So you build a series of cell phone towers and you're serving that Seattle market. It's great. Then you say, gosh, there are also a lot of folks who have, you know, they're willing to pay for the service in New York. There, you know, there's access to capital there. People will pay for this connectivity. I'm going to go to New York. And you build a series of cell phone towers. So what you don't do as Duffy Telco is you don't then build a series of cell phone towers across, you know, Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota to try to connect your Seattle and New York market. Like, no, 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 no. You plug into the existing telecommunications line that already exists. That's exactly how the cell phone network works today, right? I have a Google Fi cell phone that uses some combination of Wi-Fi and whatever telecommunications provider gives the strongest signal. Um, So the third rule of infrastructure is don't rebuild what already works, what already exists. Applying that to space, don't build where you have to bypass or replicate the terrestrial infrastructure leverage the existing ground station, the existing fiber optic cables, the existing data centers. Um, So those are kind of the three rules that we have applied to our space communications infrastructure because there's a reason it happens here on Earth. The same Mm -hmm. is true in space. And frankly, that is the disruption that we are really bringing to building space communications infrastructure um, that is, is a unique approach. Yeah, yeah. And I want to dig into that. Are are you and your team students of of business history and like looking back at like the '90s when they laid all of that fiber? And I, in my past job, I I covered like the transition to 5G or frankly the lack thereof. I don't know, um, but uh, I covered I covered that a lot, so I, I thought a decent amount about that. And you know, and then thinking about the the FCC, uh, the. $16 billion for, for subsidization of the, the build out of that because all of those areas have been neglected and there's no market incentives. So I, I am totally super fascinated by all of this and I'm sure y'all have, y'all have learned from a lot of the, the past chapters of either new, new network deployments, new, new sorts of technologies or, or, uh, areas where there were just over like completely over capacity. Absolutely. Um, so when, again, when Barris and Rhonda and I sat down and looked at this problem, let's face it, many people, many companies have tried to solve the communications infrastructure and space problem. And many of those companies have run into trouble. So they have faced significant restructuring. And sometimes even with that restructuring, they were not able to continue and progress. You know, folks, folks were overextended. And yeah, if you yeah. look at all of those different companies and how so many people have gotten, you know, stuck in trying to build in space communications infrastructure, the common thread is capital. So how, when Ron and Barris and I sat down and looked at this problem, it, it became clear to us that we can't continue down the same path that others have, have started on. We need to figure out a way to avoid getting caught in that same trap which is why our architecture is very modular, it's very scalable, and it, it really focuses around those three rules that we just talked about. Yeah, yeah. The The common thread, I would I would just add to that, the common thread is capital and chapter 11. Um, but let's, let's zero in on the technology stack and the architecture and walk through what you are building, what you're kind of developing, in-house versus kind of leveraging, as you've alluded to, off the shelf 
and, and I know I know a lot of this is proprietary or, or secret sauce, if you will, but to the extent maybe at a higher level that you can you can share information in, in context about the, the, the technology and what's going on under the hood, I think that that would be great. Absolutely. So we are a communication service provider. So we, we really believe that. <laughs> um, like I, I'm not sitting here and telling you like, oh, we're running a space company. Like, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. Like space is just a place. Like I, I don't mean to sound flippant in saying that, but we are a communication service providing company. We happen to operate in space, but space is just a place. Uh, our end customers are satellite operators who are providing data to their end customer who is, you know, lots of different segments of people, but in general, folks who need information in order to make decisions, in order to decide how to act. And our job is to make sure that those end customers of our customer are able to get that data in a timely manner so that they're able to respond. So I, I provide that context to say that where we are really focused are on the key aspects of being a service provider for telecom, for communications. So what that means is we are really focused on networking. So we need to move data through different paths. So lots of different customers, lots of different satellite operators into our network um, and then back into terrestrial infrastructure. So how do we move data? How do we route data dynamically in a way that allows us to really exploit the low latency paths that are available? You know, there's more complexity we could get into there about how do you also exploit paths that remain sovereign. So how do you keep data yeah. only on US hardware coming back into the US? And that's another thing that our architecture enables. Um, another piece of this that we're really focused on is to get data into our network, we need to ingest it from our customers. So our first commercial offering um, is launching and it'll be operational in 2025. Um, that system is designed to be backward compatible. So if we go back to being a student of history, um, when my phone doesn't have access to 5G, it doesn't just flash a big error message. It's like, we can't support you, like you're off the grid. Right. Um, right. It has to be backward compatible so you can keep falling back to be able to you know, innovate and bring everyone with you. So our first offering is built on RF. So we're gonna ingest on our, from our customers on the same platform that they use to speak to Earth. So they yeah. don't need to make any changes to their system. In the future, we are investing in obstacle communications terminals. So we will fly those on our satellites to do our inner satellite links, in addition to a KA band crosslink. And um, we do believe in a future with optical communications terminals enabling us to provide a higher, there, there can be a higher data throughput from our customer into our network which again, just helps everyone get more data moving more quickly to the people who need to use it. Right, right. When, when you say, when you, when you talk about the optical inter-satellite links, are, are, is that, are those the laser links that, that a lot of others are, are also working on? Yes, um, and this is where, um, so Barris Erkman, our CEO, has, you know, he, his background is optical comms. Um, he's, you know, MIT, PhD in electrical engineering and optics, an Optica fellow. He was most recently at Google where he was leading the technology development for Project Terra, which is Google's point-to-point -point laser. They've been doing some public demos over the river, the Congo River. Um, he, his background prior to joining Google was he was the PI at JPL for the NASA Opals mission, which was the first mission to fly an optical comms terminal on the ISS. So this is very much his domain expertise is yeah bringing this technology 
um, in, in an in-space environment to an operational state. So yeah. it is not going to be good enough to build like a special snowflake terminal um, that's kind of handcrafted, you know, bespoke manufacturing. Um, our process is really about a swap optimized system that is designed for manufacture. So these need to be able to be scaled in the same way that cell phones are produced at scale. I mean, my cell phone was, you know, built as like a discrete item yeah. that was yeah. going to be shipped to me, Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well swap, swap. That's the second time it, it came up for the first time. It will now be two episodes ago, but, but loyal Pathfinder uh, listeners will be, will be familiar with, with swap. When, when you talk about the backwards compatibility, and, and RF and ingesting, you know, that's just to dumb things down a bit, just for, for myself, that's all occurring, you know, that you're referring to what will be going on in orbit. Exactly. So we have our customer satellite is in orbit. Um, you know, it's traveling yeah. incredibly quickly. Um, and we essentially will um, grab data from that satellite. Um, and it's basically as if, you know, you're driving in a car and you're talking to a cell phone tower. It's like you're moving relative to the cell phone tower. But imagine the cell phone tower was also moving with you. That's essentially what's happening in space is that we're moving data through a, an RF link between mm -hmm. one, from a customer satellite into a Hedron node satellite. Yeah. So you're going to, I would imagine you're going to have to be flying at, at an interesting orbit. So I'm, I'm not, gonna, not going to discuss our architecture yeah. more publicly, but yes, yeah, we are yeah. moving. We're yeah. not a geostationary satellite. Right, 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 right. Okay. Well, I won't, I won't press you on that, but but interesting orbit, I'll take it. Uh, as, you know, post-Series A, uh, Hedron brought on the management team, including yourself. What does the go-to-market go to look like over, and, you know, I, I know that you've you said, said 2025, but to the extent, you know, what, what will the intervening years, what, what's the priority for, for the company and, and the strategic focus in terms of R&D, production, recruiting, uh, potentially, you know, fundraising, all of that. that. I mean, that's four different things. So maybe let's start with, with the, the, the technology and production side of things. Yep. So um, I did talk about kind of our core competencies where we're, we have that development solidly in-house and we're building up, you know, mm -hmm. our teams to really progress those technology work streams. So the networking, the optical comms, um, there is also a piece of that that is kind of the RF backward compatibility. So those are the pieces that are really core to our in-house core competency. Um, the piece that we didn't talk about that you didn't hear me say is we're not building our own satellites. We're not building up a big manufacturing oh, wing okay. to produce and manufacture in-house. Um, you know, flashback to, to we were talking about when I was at Spire and we were vertically integrating and you know, we're building our own satellites, building our own ground stations. Um, we didn't build our own launch vehicle. We still did work with service providers on that. Um, but we don't at Hedron, you know, fast forward now to where we are in time in 2022, we don't have to build our own satellite bus. There are wow. many, many folks who are very, very good at building those satellite buses. And there are very many folks who are building ground station infrastructure and providing that as a service. And frankly, there are now folks who are saying, hey, we'll also operate your satellite as a service. Mm -hmm. um, so those are all pieces that we fully intend to leverage the maturity of the space industry that exists now um, you know, Spire and Planet and frankly Skybox didn't have that luxury 
you know, yeah. 10 years ago, it didn't exist. Like they were pioneering that new market. 10 years later, we, we do have the opportunity to have multiple vendor options across all of those different subsystems, which really enables us to focus our technology development on the pieces that are really going to be differentiated for solving our customers' problems. Wow. Well, thank God you made that distinction because I asked earlier, you know, uh, operating your own hardware on orbit. And I, you know, I, I didn't even think to ask the follow up question about whether that would be payloads um, and, uh, and specific, you know, like the, the specific sensors and your technology versus your entire satellite. So glad, glad we got that covered. But and I mean, I think that that makes sense too. In 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 twenty twenty two, it's it's different than 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 twenty twelve. And there are, I'm sure that you have some interesting thoughts on this in terms of economies and scale in some of the industries that you've worked on, and even you know in in some of your your past jobs, what that looks like, and how that that's also changed. What what is what is not economies of scale, but what is kind of a, a, a critical mass of capability? What, what does that look like for y'all? What are some key thresholds that you need to hit? Yep. So um, it really goes back to defining who your target audience is. Mm -hmm. We are building in a modular, scalable way. So we are very, very closely in discussions with our customers to very closely understand their problems. And our focus, our, our customers, are folks, like I said, who are operating in Leo who are delivering data. So this is the high throughput side. So we're not, um, we're not currently focused on kind of the TTNC link. So there are existing you know, options in the marketplace for those lower data rate TTNC links. So folks, folks will fly a global star beacon, for example, or they'll fly, um, there's a new company out of Singapore, Ad Value that relies on the BGAN network, the Inmarsat network. Those solutions are very focused on that low data rate TTNC link. Um, our solution is very focused on how do you move data from a customer satellite. So um, I, I shouldn't probably pick on any of our customers in particular, name them by name, but uh, let's say that there is a, a SAR provider and they need to get data very quickly to their NRL end user. Um, and there are lots of different use cases that we all, I think, are probably yeah. pretty well familiar with, but Ukraine's an right. easy one to pick on or the South China Sea, um, where mm -hmm. we need to get that data to folks in a time frame where they can action on it. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, the, the fire example is a pretty, pretty good one there. I, I've, you know, just kind of casually pulled up the NASA firms data set, which is for those unaware, probably most people, you know, it's, it's, it's a catalog of, of fires that, that can be seen from, from space, from a NASA satellite, but there's obviously quite a bit of, of delay there, not anything that would be kind of actionable. And, and often the, the fires have been observed basically along the, the, the front lines or where the front lines were, were I don't know, 12, 12 or 24 hours ago. Yeah, and so Wells are actually a great example, Ryan, too. I, you know, I'm often asked people are really comfortable and familiar with the use cases in kind of a defense or intelligence application. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I get asked a lot, so what does this mean for civil space or commercial space? Like who, who cares about that type of data? So wildfire is actually an interesting example. Um, I was just speaking actually with an end user who uh, they have a FEMA contract to be able to aggregate data to provide to first responders. And the founder of this company is um, himself a, a firefighter who deployed to these 
you know, massive wildfires that we have here living in the American West. So that's just a yeah. fact of life now if you leave, live west of the Mississippi that wildfire is part of your reality. It's, it's, and, it hits too close to home, Catherine. Oh, it really does. Um, and in talking to this gentleman, one of the challenges that they are experiencing is that historically most of the data that is you know, directed to first responders comes from drone platforms or aircraft platforms. But the challenge that we're seeing in the West is that with these super fires that are burning so hot, they have different con convection layers that are preventing them from being able to launch aviation platforms. So then they're flying blind. They wow. don't have access to data. They haven't used satellite data historically because like you just said, Ryan, it's not that helpful to know what was on fire 60 minutes ago. Yeah. Um, they need data to say what's on fire right now. Um, and, and the type of decisions that they make based on this data are, is the fire burning at the top of the canyon such that we can safely you know, put first responders into the mouth of the canyon to be able to evacuate people, to be able to protect structures? Or actually, do we have an obstruction where if we send people into the mouth of the canyon, the fire is, you know, is moving in a direction such that we're not confident that they will have an egress path, in which case they won't send first responders. And so what happens now is that folks without that data they're not able to make the decision to to send folks into what is potentially dangerous situation. So, you know, they're flying blind in terms of trying to figure out where where is the perimeter of the fire, what actions can still be taken. So this yeah. is the type of civil space application where having the the latency makes all the difference. If you can get yeah. data to someone in less than a minute, they would actually buy and use that data. But if it's going to be archival, and, and here I use archival somewhat flippantly, but it's you know if it's over 20 minutes old, there's no there's low fidelity. They have low confidence that they can take an action based on that old data. Right, right. And these are these are situations, as you mentioned, where there's not any sort of competing. You know, you don't you're not doing a measurement or an observation in situ or overhead. Um, and and I mean for a lot of the like for the for the fires out west, unfortunately, I think I, I think I, I'm by no means an expert, but I would imagine a lot of times they're at a scale where doing doing any any sort of like observations or monitoring, it's not it's not feasible um, for for any sort of for for any like altitude um, beyond you know actual the higher ground that is that is space. Um, I think the, the civil. So, so defense and intelligence, we, we, we need, we need not be a dead horse. I think that's totally clear that there are so many applications for this kind of low latency. I think for civil, it's, it's pretty clear as well. I think the, the wildfire examples is especially instructive. What kind of end user applications would this, could this technology potentially open up? So for, for say an earth observation satellite operator serving a uh, fortune 500 or some other type of commercial entity yeah so um let me give two examples um one is oil and gas so there are very large existing contracts that folks that earth observation satellite operators have to provide data to oil and gas operators one of the latency specific use cases here is monitoring offshore oil rigs. And so there are huge consequences if you have a leak and um, you know, 
volumes of oil that can come through a leak in a minute versus 60 minutes is a huge order of magnitude, you know, orders of magnitude yeah. in terms of mitigation Absolutely. activity. And so you want to be able to detect and move on that data as quickly as possible. And so again, the value of that information um, is hugely different. Um, if it's, oh my gosh, we, we had a problem, we still have a problem versus like, we have a problem and we're on it and we can fix it. You know, like we're talking about billions of dollars of mitigation that can be prevented by catching mm -hmm. the problem more quickly. Um, another example is, um, and I'll, I'll obscure the names here just to protect some yeah. proprietary product work of, here. But, of course. Um, one of our customers has, has come to us and said, you know, we have an end customer. So their end customer is a shipping conglomerate. And, you know, piracy is a very real problem. Oh. And yeah. so currently, satellite-based data sets are used to say, hey, you said that this cargo was lost, but there are... SAR images and optical images of you being up, you know, up against another ship, you know, off coast somewhere. And right now there's like, that is data that is being purchased, but it's just to create a bit of a, this is fishy type of, of data set. Um, mm -hmm. But when all of that information is received after the cargo has been moved to a, you know, a, a different vessel, there's no ability to recover it because those two ships have gone off on their own paths. And so if you can get that data of like, we've got two ships offshore and we have the archival data that suggests that we have an issue with lost cargo, you can intercept the second vessel before it comes into to port. And I was shocked to hear from, from this customer that their end customer, this is a trillions of dollar problem for them. Wow. So this isn't just a, hey, we lost one shipping container and wouldn't it be nice if we got back, you know, all of those Christmas presents that really should have ended up at the port of LA and now are somewhere in Indonesia. It's like, no, 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 this is happening at a scale um, that this needs, um, you know, the way that this gets paid for is an insurance write-off. And so throughout that chain, there are a trillion dollar, trillions of dollars of impact that if you could actually prevent that cargo from being lost, but actually take an action to intercept the vessel, um, you're solving a very significant problem. I'm curious. I think the broad profile of, of customers that you are working with or will be working with, I think that's, that's pretty clear. What I'm curious about is, is if or when, maybe when, you know, uh, Hedron starts to become a, a, a revenue generating company. Like what's what, what the what the in, in inflection points or sort of preconditions for that are? Yeah, so that goes back to kind of, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but like the three rules of building telecommunications infrastructure <laughs> as derived from the terrestrial communications infrastructure. Um, build where there is demand. Build where people will pay to use that infrastructure. And those are all the conversations that we're having with our customers right now is we are building our initial commercial offering that is live in 2025 based on that yeah. demand. Yeah. So when I say we're operational in 2025, again, the uniqueness of our approach to telecommunications infrastructure is that that initial commercial offering is sustainable. It is yeah. your cash flow positive 
2025. So it's not that, you know, Barris and Rhonda and I and our entire team have been sitting in a conference room for the last year coming up with this really, you know, elegant, unified grid that we're then going to take five years to build and then we're going to hope to monetize for the next 20 years because that's the right. level of exposure we have. That breaks the three rules. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised you're giving giving away. I think that there's there's enough, like, teasers and, and innuendo to get a pretty good, like, comprehensive view of how this will all come together and fit in place. But I'm surprised that you you're, you were willing to part with your the three rules on Pathfinder. You know, I am thrilled to chat with you and I am thrilled to continue to, to talk with our customers and help them solve that kind of lag problem that they're experiencing. Like we got to get our customers from a 1960s communications world to the era of modern communications where you know, mm -hmm. we need to get data to people in the same time frame that you and I are having a conversation from Texas to Colorado. Like satellites right. are not anywhere close to that. Satellites are living in the, yeah. like, I called you, I left a voicemail and I got your voicemail when I got home from the grocery store 20 minutes later. Um, and I think that people don't, unless you're very deep into, you know, having worked in an operational satellite company, people are shocked. So, you know, I try to explain to my... Yeah family what I'm working on and, and I almost always get the reaction of like that doesn't exist like I right. assumed that we can get to whatever data on whatever satellite at any point in time at all times I'm like mm -hmm. no I mean please like I know the James Bond movies make it look like we can instantly get data from anywhere to anywhere else like but we're working on it that's the piece we're trying to build right now yeah well that flows perfectly into the first question that I commonly ask guests at the end of the show the, the the rapid fire, if you will, and that is is I feel like you're going to have a very good answer for this one. But what is a a hot take, a con contrarian view that you have about the the current state or the future uh, of the space industry? Oh, a hot take! Gosh, now I'm going to have to come up with something incredibly controversial. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's that hot, but strongly help strongly. Strongly held view is easier for me to say. I think it is. And that, um, that, is more, that will more than suffice. It, it's really, as long as you can focus on, on the work, focus on the hard problems, mm -hmm. focus on your customers' problems, everything else flows from that. So um, it doesn't matter if you have the world's most elegant looking architecture, if you solve the problem that someone doesn't have. It doesn't matter if you have the world's most capable you know, optical telecommunication system if you're not able to deploy it in a way that solves someone's real problem. So I think, you know, it's not probably controversial, but it is, we are so focused on that product mindset at Hedron um, and having such a close relationship with our customers to make yeah. sure that we are building infrastructure that solves a real problem for them. I'm curious if there are any other industries Telco is one, but any other industries that you would that you think the space industry could could take a, a page of the, their their playbook from? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think in general the space industry is full of really really motivated, mission driven, intelligent people, um, and people do not like you don't meet people who are like, oh, I just found myself in the space industry and I've been here for 40 years. Like, no, people have driven themselves because they are so passionate about solving these types of problems um, and really have a good visionary mindset about what could be possible. 
um, I think back to our conversation, um, there is so much work to be done in the world, period. So yeah. whether it's space, whether it's telecom, whether it's, you know, gosh, so much innovation that's still happening in, in medicine and, and healthcare related pro- products as well. But it's really about what is the problem you're trying to solve and really staying focused on that problem. And so that's the piece that I think it's um, it can be there's so much interesting work to be done. But it's about how do you solve the problem in real life for real people in a way that's sustainable. And that's something that we're really focused on at Hedron is it's not enough for us to design something on paper and say, hey, wouldn't this be an elegant way to solve this? We have to build it in a way that our customers will use and pay the hard earned money that they've earned from their end customers to solve a real problem. And that's the cycle that allows us to be sustainable. So if infrastructure is not sustainable, this is where people run into to, to problems. And so really staying focused on where is that demand pull? And back to rule number one, only build infrastructure where there are people who are willing to pay for it. This is a, a question that should have been earlier in the show that I forgot to ask, but I think it's important. What How has your experience been as a distributed, virtually distributed company? Because that's a little bit less common in this industry. Yeah, no, I think it's, um, gosh, the pandemic is really the reason why our team is virtually distributed is everyone was living in the remote world. Um, we are really focused on building a team with people who are passionate about this mission. And and passion only takes you so far, but the reason I, I reference passion is it's, are you dedicated to solving this problem? Because gosh, as you and I both know, there are so many interesting so, so many problems to be solved in the world these days, and so many interesting problems, even within our aerospace industry, that um, we really are focused on folks who have seen this problem before. It's been a thorn in their side. Um, and, you know, similar to, you know, I've looked at this problem for the last 10 years and kind of felt like we're stuck, like the, the era of ubiquitous data from space that can solve all these problems that promise hasn't been realized because there are only so many people who care about the world the way that it looked an hour ago. Like we can't drive any change from that. We need to move into the, this is what's happening and therefore we're going to take this action. And that's the piece that is the stepwise function we're unlocking. We're really focused on finding those people. And and frankly, they find us, which is great. Um, It's people who've really seen this problem and are, are motivated to spend their time and life energy to push that problem space forward. Awesome. That being said, well, like I should be clear, like we have our hardware team co-located, so we're building our nice. optical communications terminal. So our lab is a physical <laughs> yeah. place where people that physically live and go into the lab. So it's not that, um, that, that everybody sense. is just remote. Yeah, that'd be pretty impressive if your hardware team was like wearing AR or VR headsets and they were all actually distributed. I don't know if anyone has has done that yet, but that probably some. Something makes me think that that wouldn't be as as effective or, or productive, but I think that all makes sense. Uh, and I and I'll I'll just add I'm looking forward to to seeing what sorts of of markets and entire sorts of applications for space based data and imagery are opened up and unlocked if if you're if if you succeed in what you set out to do, but. Thank you so much for for the time, Catherine. This has been great. My, my mind is going to be spinning for like for like a couple more hours today, but I learned a lot today. Well, great. Thank you so much for the great conversation. That will do it for Pathfinder 0027, powered by Payload. We've only got a few more episodes this year, and I guess time flies when you're making newsletters for your ears. 
As I mentioned a couple weeks back, we've got big plans in store for Pathfinder in the new year. Can't wait to tell you more, but for the time being, I'm gonna read us out. Thanks to Catherine for peeling back the curtains on what he drawn is building, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. It will really help move the needle. And fun fact, Pathfinder had its very own Spotify wrap this year. We're in the top 5% most shared, viewed, and followed podcasts worldwide. And if you want a fuller breakdown, check the show notes for a link. That will do it for today. I'm Ryan Duffy signing off, and I'll see you back here next week.